Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. The first bill the Missouri House passed out of its chamber this session is legislation that establishes an open enrollment program for the state's public schools. For Missouri Republicans, it's one of the many ways they could address school choice, a topic some say is a priority for them. On this episode of Politically Speaking, Representative Kathy Steinhoff makes her debut. The Columbia Democrat, a former teacher, discusses what she believes the legislature should pass to benefit education and why that doesn't include establishing open enrollment. Let's hit the music. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio Statehouse and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host. He is St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent. Jason Merzenbaum. And sitting across from me in Jefferson City, she is the Missouri House Representative for District 45. Kathy Steinhoff. Welcome to the show. We're so excited. to have. We always love having first-time guests. And so uh, before we get into kind of a little bit more about you, uh, would you describe your district for us and our listeners and who you represent? Sure. First, let me say thank you for having me here. I'm really excited to have this opportunity. So I am, as you said, representative of the 45th district, which is in Boone County, and my particular district is mostly central Columbia. It's a it's a pretty diverse area. It's also, um, for being in the middle of the state, the fact that I have the university campus, I have downtown Columbia, I have several hospitals, I have several private universities. It's a very cool district, I would say the coolest in the state. Uh, I'm a Mizzou grad, so I'm a little biased. I wouldn't disagree. <laughs> I think Dave Jason as well as another Mizzou grad. But, you know, you as well as your other fellow Democrats from Columbia seem to be a kind of a new coalition. What do you think this area kind of looked like prior to redistricting? Do you believe that this was would have been possible without the new maps? Um, I don't think it would have been possible. I think the maps did help. But I also think if you look at the way Boone County has voted, we, we lean uh, Democratic. And so for many years, when we had five representatives and only two of them were Democrats, it didn't really match um, our, our population, so to speak. So I think the boundaries, the new maps, made it represent our community better. My, It's hard to say what my district was, because where I lived, it changed in number. So uh, whether I'm the old 46th, the, the new 45th, uh, it was always probably the more safe seat for a Democrat, and it continues to be now. Since this is your debut on Politically Speaking, tell us about yourself. All right. Well, my whole history is in public schools. I taught in Columbia Public Schools for 34 years before retiring. I'm a math teacher, and most of the time I taught freshman level, with geometry being my passion and my favorite course to teach. Um, I also 
throughout my career have been very involved in my teachers union. And that included six years as president and nine years on the negotiation team. And when I um, went about retiring, it just so happened to be the same time that my rep, Martha Stevens, decided to not run for her last term. And some people came to me and suggested I do this. And I I really <laughs> didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was very hesitant to do it. But everybody I talked to thought it was a good idea. I kept hoping somebody would talk me out of it. But I'm really grateful that I took that leap. It was uh, it was pretty scary. And it still remains scary day after day. But um, I'm really enjoying this work. And I think people saw me as an advocate for educators and for students in our community. And so this does just feel like the next step and to just advocate for a larger base. What made you push through your fear to jump headfirst into the tranquil world of Missouri politics? <laughs> well, it was funny when I was uh, the, the people who were talking to me when I was kind of resisting the idea, they would say, so what are you scared about, like getting up on the floor and talking? And I thought, no, that doesn't scare me at all. Are you scared about maybe having conversations where you disagree with somebody? No, that doesn't scare me at all. <laughs> you know, so it was funny that all the things that I think would normally scare a person out of this, they were not the ones for me. For me, it was just the idea of having running a race, um, the idea of debating somebody, uh, the idea of, you know, bringing my family into a spotlight that, you know, they maybe didn't sign up for. And then um, I just the more that people told me it was a good idea. And I kept thinking about all of the people that I have voted for in the last year, you know, several years that that lost their races. And they took that risk and they got out there. And I thought, well, how can I go forward wishing people, good people would run for office if I'm not willing to do it when there are people telling me that I would be good at it? So I think all of that is what made me kind of decide to go ahead and, and do it. And, and your race was a very difficult and arduous one <laughs> where you ran against unopposed. I guess that's a pretty rare thing, but I really advocate for that. That is the way to run for office, let me tell you. <laughs> what, what have been your impressions of the Missouri House so far? Well, that is, um, that's a loaded question. There's a lot going on if I think about the answer to that question. Uh, it There are parts of it that surprise me in a positive way. You know, there are, I'm meeting so many people on both sides of the aisle that are just really dedicated to doing the work for the people of Missouri. And it's so fascinating to me the way that we're bringing experts from so many different fields together and trying to make good decisions. So, you know, there's the positive aspect of it. But there's also, in the midst of that going on, there's just so much politics, which I know sounds silly for me to say the part I don't like is the politics. But it is uh, some of the motivations on votes, some of the motivations on what is said on the floor, which I there are times that I'm just in shock that I'm hearing somebody say this out loud when there's like children in the in the chamber um, that that political piece is very frustrating. And I think it's what frustrates everybody in the public to see what's happening down here. Since you have such a, a rich background in education, we have a lot of education questions okay. for you. Too much. It's going to take us to the break, and we're going to have even more. So okay. let's get started. Uh, we were recording this not quite a week after the House passed a bill establishing an open enrollment process for public schools in the state. What are your thoughts on the legislation? Well, I'm very disappointed that we are even talking about open enrollment. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a supporter of public schools, and I believe our public schools have been underfunded for many years. I believe we are asking way too much of our public schools and then judging them on not performing at a high level when we're adding more to the plates of our educators and not just our educators, our entire school system. We're adding so much more to the plate 
We are not funding them at the level that they need to be. And then they're being chastised for not being able to perform, which is beyond frustrating for me. So when we start looking at things, and you might ask about these two, you know, open enrollment, charters, vouchers, all of these things are just getting away from the idea of we need to really look at what our school's function is, and we really need to find out how much does it cost to, to educate children well, and we need to support that. And until we start doing that, I don't think we should be diverting money to all of these other things because it's just going to continue to weaken public schools. You know, you spoke out against this bill on the House floor. What compelled you to speak about it instead of just, you know, voting no? Um, I think it was important for me. It's one of the things that brought me down here. Uh, My support of public education, I think it's the thing that had people ask me to run for office. And so when I see things that are hurting us, I feel like it's important that I get up and say something about it. I also think that there are sometimes nuances in this bill. Like, for instance, this, um, this particular open enrollment bill had some nuances that I don't think people that are outside of the public education arena understand the same way those of us that in that public education arena. So I think it's important to point those out. And that's what I I feel like I did on the floor. What do you believe were some of those nuances that you wanted to explain? Well, like, for instance, um, I was I'm very concerned about the fact that the districts they call, uh, in the bill, they're called non-resident districts that are receiving the students. They have the ability to basically deny the transfer to certain students. And in the bill, some of those exclusions are if the special education services exceed what the district can provide without hiring additional people. And another one is discipline records. Um, When we start talking about having alternatives to public schools, I think it's important that those alternatives play by the same rules. And so what we have in that case is we, we might have a child that is being refused acceptance to one public school, and they are protected by the law by being able to do that, but then the other school doesn't have a choice in that. And that, to me, is not a uh, a fair playing field. Um, I, it also concerns me of the the legal uh, risk that we put our districts in, because when you've got a legal document like an IEP saying a student is guaranteed certain services, but then you let a public school say, no, we're not going to provide those services for you, it, you know, it really does put the districts at risk. And I, I just think about the the fact that we are not really giving choice to parents of students, some parents of students with special ed students, because there were a lot of caveats. I mean, to be fair, there were a lot of caveats in this bill to protect the services to special ed students. But then there was just this one. It basically was saying if it goes over the top, you don't have to accept them. And then the disciplinary records. We've got we've got kids in all of our schools across Missouri that are they're causing trouble, you know, for a variety of me- reasons. It could be mental health reasons. It could be, you know, safety. It could just be that they're going through a phase. You think of how many adults talk about how much trouble they gave their teachers when they were at school. But we've got kids who have discipline records. And this bill didn't uh, gives the district the ability to not to deny on that. And so when we talk about choice, the idea of choice is that you want to go someplace that would work better for where you are, than where you are. And it's not providing choice for those students. And those are just a couple of the things in the bill. So uh, as a follow-up to that, and this gives me the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite educational creations in the state of Missouri, the Special School District of St. Louis County, which provides uh, services to at least one of my sons. Couldn't you make an argument that the restrictions you just mentioned prevent somebody, say, from St. Charles or Jefferson County who do not pay the special school district tax and have decided by choice to live in a place where they don't have a special school district from moving to St. Charles or Jeffco, paying a lower tax rate, and then using open enrollment to transfer into 
the special school district of St. Louis County. As a St. Louis County, and frankly, I feel like that sort of protection is actually a good one because I feel like if they were allowed to do that under this bill, it's essentially freeloading and they're getting the benefit of the special school district without actually having to pay for it. Oh. I know that's more of an observation than a question, no. but I'd like you to respond to that. No, I agree. And we could expand it further than that, just because any student that is accepted through this open enrollment bill, um, it's very, the potential is that they could go to a district that has a much higher tax base that they are not contributing to. And you think about all of the opportunities that that higher tax base provides. There's probably more sporting opportunities. There's probably more extracurricular opportunities, probably more um, enrollment choices and maybe some more advanced uh, world languages or, 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 or better maybe career center type courses. So I think it you are exactly right. And it, it surprises me to think that there would be local districts, the actual community members that would be excited about that, that would, would think, oh, we're paying taxes, but you're going to start asking people to come in that are not going to pay their fair share to this education system. What does it mean that this was the first bill that the House passed this year? What, what, kind of, what do you get out of that decision? Well, I do think it means that it's a priority for uh, those in charge. Uh, to get this open enrollment through. And from what I hear, I think there's some other open enrollment bills out there. Um, there's also the fear, you know, this this came through pretty clean. There was there was really no changes. There was one change during the committee process, and that was brought by the bill sponsor. So it was like from the get-go. And that was another piece that I think it was hurting. Uh, in the original bill, there were some provisions that would protect from potential segregation um, in schools. So schools that had high rates of, say, free and reduced lunch or high rates of um, diversity, uh, maybe a high number of black students, to keep the those leaving the district more limited so it wouldn't make those rates higher, <laughs> if that makes sense. So there were those protections in there that were basically stripped out before it left committee. Um, but the fact that the rest of the bill is one that I I believe the sponsor said that they've been bringing it for four years. Um, I haven't been here for four years, so I don't know that. So I would imagine over those four years, it's really been, you know, uh, kind of refined into what we're seeing today. And so they felt like it was safe. And I'll be honest, of the open enrollment bills that I've seen, it's probably the least troubling. But the big thing is, is that it opens a door. You know, it may be the least troubling the way it looks right now. But once it goes to the Senate, who knows how it will change? Once it comes back, who knows how it could change? Um, and then if it becomes law, then every year it becomes a pretty easy thing to just change your word here and change your word there. So those things that made it seem a little safer could be removed in a moment. When it passed the House, it's a close vote. It's, it's you know, for a supermajority, Republican supermajority, that's a closer vote than you normally see with bills. Open enrollment seems to really get a bunch of no's from Republicans who feel like it's not good for the district. Thoughts on the fact that it is a close vote and the fact that now it does have to go to the Senate where we have some Republican senators that have education backgrounds or others where you can stall bills more. Are you expecting changes? Are you like What are your thoughts on the fact that this is not a, a buy-in from everyone? Well, I mean, I would agree with you. The vote was very close. And this is one of those topics, as you said, where we have some interesting allies on resisting it. But if you look at what the bill is saying, those allies are often our rural schools, particularly the ones that are on the outskirts of some suburban type areas, because I think that they are worried that they're going to 
lose enough students that potentially puts them at risk of, of closing or consolidating. And, you know, there's a lot of people that would push back and say, but that would be years from now. Well, it doesn't matter because if it's years from now or if it's today, it still is still damaging to the community that they live in when that school is an important part of their community. So that's why we end up having a lot of um, supporters that are on both sides of the aisle and from very de interesting demo you know, demographic areas. As far as your question about the Senate, this is also new to me. I don't know what to expect, and um, but I do know that there is, an, there is a fear on supporters of this bill and opponents to this bill. There's a fear from both sides of what could get added on in the future. So for parents that would like choices for children when it comes to schools, what would your ideal legislation or change look like? Well, I think people don't want to hear that my thought is that we need to start by fully funding our schools. And I don't mean fully fund the foundation formula. I mean, look at what our schools needs are and really satisfy the needs of those districts. Because if they weren't having to function on less than what they need, they could provide a better array of choices for our students and for our families, I think. And so it's hard to say exactly what that would look like. And, and don't get me wrong, even having taught for 34 years, I think our schools are in desperate need for, for a change in how we educate students today as opposed to students, you know, 50 years ago. But we cannot just make that change while we are still trying to just survive on the amount of money that we are receiving. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking. Our guest today is Representative Kathy Steinhoff, who is the Democratic representative for District 45, which includes Columbia, Missouri. Uh, we have more education questions for you, as promised. Let's get back into it. So other legislation that could gain momentum on education from Republicans this year would be charter school expansion in both St. Louis County, St. Charles County, and Boone County. What are your opinions on these bills that have already had a hearing in committee? Well, there's so many things to think about on this. Uh, when you say that they had a committee hearing, that was not the education committee. It's a new committee that was formed. I believe it's on uh, school, public school reform, or it's school reform. I, I should know the name of the committee. But uh, why that committee was formed, one can guess might have something to do with the bills getting out of there. That might be a priority for some people. So those charter school uh, bills did go through. I'm very opposed to them for the same reasons I'm opposed to open enrollment. It, it is playing by a different set of rules. And we already have elected school boards in each of our communities. That's the whole design of public schools is to have that geographic representation for the schools that are lo that are in their community. So to, ha to have these charter schools be able to come in take money away from our public schools, to not be under the direction of um, local school boards. I, I just think it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous route to take. The, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education will be going through a major leadership change in the near future when Republican State Senator Carla Esslinger takes the helm of that agency. Uh, what do you think about Senator Esslinger's appointment to this post? Well, I am not, uh, I don't know Senator Esslinger, but I hear so many great things about her. And the fact that she has experience in that department and, you know, within a, a similar type role, I guess, uh, I think that that gives a lot of people um, some ease in this transition. 
I'm I'm really actually looking forward to seeing what kind of changes it might bring about. Because as I said before, I am in favor of looking at ways to make education better. And, I, and I'm really optimistic that she'll have some ideas and be able to support those people under her and getting those ideas out there. Teacher pay. This is something where the legislature has funded career ladder as well as an opt-in program to raise teacher pay the last couple of years. What else needs to be done on teacher pay? Oh, lots of things. I mean, we just need to increase it. I am grateful that the legislature, before I got here even, looked at putting money towards recruitment and retention with the base salary program and then also career ladder. And I don't want to, like, look a gift horse in the mouth, but I'm not sure that I think that those are the best measures in really recruiting and retaining teachers. Um, I I mean, I could go into detail, but I also don't want (laughs) to bore the people listening. It's just that There are so many teachers in our state that are seeing no increase from those two measures. And I believe that the way our schools are right now, the crisis that we are in and losing teachers, we need to make sure that every single teacher in this state knows that we appreciate what they're doing and that we want them to come back next year. So I'm much more interested in coming up with some measure where we are using some state funds to directly go to every single teacher in the state. And right now, the the two programs that we're supporting it just has limited impact. I, I want to say it's I, less than 40% of the teachers in the state are seeing any money from either of those measures. So is that like for you a statutory change to raise the statutory minimum pay? I'm kind of curious, like, or is it just kind of a here's money for teachers for like this one year? I'm curious kind of what, what are just says, you know, not to get too detailed, but what are some kind of broad ideas for that? Yeah, I mean, if I could just be in charge of the world, oh, so many things would change. But <laughs> I think one of the things that I would love to see is just that there was a $5,000 check given to every teacher in this state. We could still let the local school district set the salary, but the teachers would be realizing this $5,000 extra that would be coming from the state. I think if you took a look at what that would do, it would really raise our rankings nationwide. Um, It wouldn't be putting any more pressure on our local school districts because that would be coming from the state. But we would still be pushing our local school districts to raise salaries in that area. Talking about teacher pay, talking about education general, the week of the state of the state, we asked Representative Ashley Ani what she wants to see done for teachers. And she said other than giving them more money, she wants the legislature to leave teachers alone. What are your thoughts on that comment? Well, I think that there's a lot of um, talk about the job that teachers are doing. And I think for some people, it is to um, forward their views of things like charters and vouchers and open enrollment. So I, you know, I think some people are picking, let's say, on the education system and picking on teachers in order to further their causes. But it's so damaging. It just has such a lasting impact on these people that are working with our students you know, we'll say on the front line. I mean, they're in there every day helping those students, and they're doing it with the lowest paid salaries in the nation. So I see the representative's point that we need to do a little bit more uplifting. You know, I was teaching during the time of COVID, and it was fascinating that in April of that year, how teachers were just heralded as heroes. You know, people started to realize, how can teachers do this? They're the most amazing, you know, things on the planet. But by August, it took a a severe turn, and it was really devastating. I just remember my colleagues, how they felt during that time in April of, first of all, their own personal lives were changing, and they were dealing with a lot of crises in their own lives. Um, Some of them were just changing their whole outlook on what a work-life balance was. They were, you know, they were being 
held up in the public eyes only to feel very different in the fall when some schools were going um, in person and some were staying virtual. And kind of it's another thing that kind of came out of the pandemic is a lot of parents wanting kind of more accountability from their kids from seeing them being virtual taught, you know, things like that. So last year there was a bill establishing in the Senate a Parents Bill of Rights, which included an accountability portal that would have required schools to put learning materials, instructions, sources. It did make it past the Senate, but it didn't make it through the House. What are your thoughts on this bill? Is this something that you think is necessary? I believe parents are an integral part of the education system, and I think most teachers agree with me. I mean, if we could get parents involved in every kid's education, it, it would be a better place. I think there are a lot of teachers out there begging for some parents to be a little bit more involved in what's going on in their child's lives. But many of the things that I saw in that Parents' Bill of Rights are already available. You know, you, you can look on your local school district and you can see these things. There is a fight for some transparency that would be more in a one collective spot that's on the DESE website. But I would also say there's a lot of information on the DESE website that's pretty uniform and actually pretty easy to find. So the part that concerns me about this is the fact that it is it feels very divisive. It goes back to it feels like it's blaming schools and it's blaming teachers for not being transparent. And I will tell you, I had a child in school not too long ago, and I remember the emails I got from teachers in the district. And it got to the point where I couldn't read all of them. So it's not like they're trying to keep things secret. A lot of that is reaching out to parents to pull them in. So I, to me, that bill felt like it was trying to make a point and it really wasn't going to change things. And I wish we could drill down to what is it that we really need to see changed, again, a away from this political posturing of, you know, parents deserve more rights. Yes, they deserve every one of these rights, but they have most of them already. Another set of bills dealing with schools barring transgender students from using restrooms or locker rooms in schools that align with their gender identity are, are, are moving at least through the committee process. And this is a year after the legislature barred transgender athletes from playing on teams that align with their gender identity and barred most minors from accessing uh, puberty blockers and hormone therapy. What are your thoughts on these new slate of, of transgender related bills that deal with the education space? I, I don't, yeah, I don't know where to begin on these. I just, I, I do not understand why we are going after some of really our most vulnerable students. You know, I told you that I teach taught mostly freshman level. So this is like the kids just leaving elementary right before their, their high school years. So you can imagine that I saw a lot of students that were questioning things in their lives. And these were not students running around with smiles and jumping up and down all the time. These kids were going through a real you know, crisis in thinking about who they are and what their future holds. And so when I picture those students in my mind and I see the conversations that happen on the floor, I see the bills that are coming through committees, I see some students just like them that are there testifying every day and just begging to basically say, leave, leave us alone. You know, we're dealing with our own stuff. Please leave us alone. So the fact that we continue to come after this population is just heartbreaking to me. Um, I believe that our, I, I know the district I taught in, and I believe that there's many other districts out there that are very cautious in making sure that every student in their school feels safe. And in many cases, that means that they're coming up with individual plans for these students so that the general population of students feel safe, but also those students that are asking for some special accommodations feel safe as well. And I don't see this widespread um, Set of, set of circumstances that uh, people 
tend to <laughs> claim when they're they're sponsoring these bills. Uh, I also feel like last year there was this general sense of let us get these bills through and then we'll just leave everybody alone. And we can see that that is not the case. I mean, one of the bills is actually uh, getting rid of that um, sunset uh, just within a year of, of the bill passing. So before we transition to kind of an odds and ends, I want to ask you, uh, before we move on from education, what are priorities for you? I know you mentioned teacher pay. What are some other education bills that maybe you want to see? Well, I mean, you've heard me talk a little bit about funding. I, I really want to see our schools funded better and in a way that is more, you know, equitable to the schools and their needs. So the foundation formula is our mechanism right now for funding schools. And there are parts of it that are I believe very outdated. So I would love to see fixes to that foundation formula. And I think that there is interest in doing that on both sides of the aisle by, you know, some some of our representatives. So I am trying to work across the aisle to see if there's some ways that we can um, advocate for those fixes. There's not going to be it's not going to be a major change. Uh, I wish it were. <laughs> but, you know, every little bit helps. I, as I said before, I'm also very interested in raising teacher salaries. And the other thing that I go back to my uh, schools and I tell them all the time is keep me aware of little things that can make, you know, kids' education better and the adults that are taking care of them, their lives easier. We, we talk about the working conditions of teachers and all educators being so difficult right now. And so there are, you know, some little fixes that we are working on to just, again, try to make that a more appealing job, a more livable job for people, because in my opinion, is one of the most important careers that we have in our society. It seems that legislation on child care is getting kind of a fast track in the House. It's already passed committee. It's on the perfection calendar. What do you make of this probably being, if not the second bill passed, something passed rather quickly in the House? I'm so excited about this. Now, let me say I am not in favor of tax credits very often. And I wish this was a different mechanism, but the expense on those tax credits is far outweighed by the benefit to uh, how we can increase childcare across our state. It is the most important time in a child's development. And we it is something that we have not paid attention to enough. When we think about some of these other problems that we've been talking about today, some of them could be solved by students having better experiences in those early formative years. And we do also know that it has an, it has, uh, an impact on economic development. It has an impact on families being able to have jobs if they want to have jobs. So there are all these other benefits to our society as well. But this is, in my opinion, one of the best investments we can make. I'm glad that it is one of the first bills passing through. It is one that I think most of us thought would pass through last year. So I am very supportive of it. So over in the Missouri Senate, things are uh, not very happy right now, to put it mildly, uh, because things have been at a standstill because of this, frankly, odd standoff between the Freedom Caucus and the GOP leadership over the timing of passing a measure that would make the Constitution harder to amend. Um what are kind of your overall thoughts about this standoff and what is what is kind of your general thought about making the Constitution more difficult to amend? Well, as far as the standoff goes, you know, it's just uh, to me a, a kind of a power flex. And you're always going to have people that are that are doing that sort of thing. I honestly don't follow it super closely, <laughs> maybe because there's so many other things to be looking at. But as far as the actual IP 
I think that that is really disappointing that there is such an interest in making it harder for Missouri voters to bring forth um, areas of concern that they don't think the legislature is taking care of. It, to me, it seems pretty obvious that their biggest fear right now is that abortion access, when it's voted on in the fall, is that the will of the people is going to be very different than the will of those that are trying to flex that power right now. So that's, to me, what that is all about. Yeah. And I know this is kind of a technical question that may glaze the eyes of our listeners, but this is actually pretty important. Like, if if Republicans are dead set on putting a measure making it more difficult to raise the bar to pass constitutional amendments before an abortion legalization measure, they really have two options. One is for Governor Parson to call like a June election and then have the abortion initiative go on August, which I think is pretty unlikely. I haven't I don't remember the last statewide election in in outside of August and November. I know it happened in the 90s with conceal and carry, but I, I just don't see that happening. And I guess the other one is August is the is when they vote on IP and then November is when they vote on abortion. And I think that like if if Republicans end up doing that and the IP measure fails, they've basically given Democrats like a pretty sizable turnout mechanism for the Democratic or for the general election. Um, and and for good reason, people are really energized about this issue. So that's more of an observation than yeah. a question. But what do you kind of make of the sequencing uh, debate over this? Well, I think you described it very well. And I believe people are kind of all up in the air if it were to play out the way that you just described. So I feel pretty confident that there would be legal challenges on both sides to decide whether the, if it were to pass in August that it would affect the November election. Um, I think the other thing to think about is that we probably are looking at the same informed uh, group of people. So uh, I hope that it wouldn't pass early. I think that there would I think there's enough people out there that understand how connected they are. And even those that aren't um, connecting those two, I, I still think that there's a lot of people that understand so many of the measures that have passed in in recent years, even, you know, medical marijuana, recreational marijuana, um, clean Missouri, opposing uh, right to work. I think that there's so many people on both sides of the aisle that would still want to protect this ability of the people to bring forth their own petitions. FRA, um, what do you think will happen with that? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. Uh, as far as my knowledge about it is pretty limited, other than the fact that it is critical that we get this passed. And it, it just makes me nervous to think that we are so close to the uh, deadline on being able to do that, if that makes sense. Like, we, we have to do it this session. It could be really disastrous to our, our medical industry in the state of Missouri, and it would come back to hurt, I believe, every single one of us in, in how we would see our hospitals functioning and how our insurance would be functioning. So I... I wish it was the first thing that they would have passed through because it is not even a partisan issue as far as I see. It's just a functional thing that our state needs to be working on. So last time the FRA was up for renewal, it had to go to special session because there was a group of senators that wanted um, anti-abortion legislation, legislation that saying that Medicaid funding wouldn't go to Planned Parenthood mainly. Right. Um, and that forced it to go to special session because it didn't get done. Uh, 
are you anticipating something again like that this year? Kind of are you gearing up for a special session or kind of like thoughts on the fact that it did take a special session last time because of that differences? And it wasn't it, it was bipartisan, but also it was not. Yeah, we have not talked about that. And I think it's just because the points that you all have made. Right. This is a interesting year. We already see the Senate starting off um, behaving in the way that we were all fearful would happen. And we see it happening uh, there's a lot of speculation that maybe we won't get anything done this year. And so there's a lot, <laughs> there is a lot of, uh, yeah, concern about how the year will go. And I think we're all just kind of playing along and see what happens. And, you know, we got front row seats to it. <laughs> That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Representative Steinhoff, for joining us on the show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow all of our coverage at stlpr.org. And Representative Steinhoff, where can people find you on the internet where you want to be found? Oh, well, actually, I can be found all over the place. I am on several social media sites. It's also really easy to contact any of your legislature, legislators, me included. Uh, you, you know, you can email us at, you know, kathy.steinhoff.house.mo.gov. And uh, we... You can also come visit us at the Capitol. I'm very close to where the little gift shop is right behind there. And I would love to meet you all. So please come out to the Capitol or email me if you have any questions. All right. Until next time. So long. Politically Speaking is produced by Sarah Kellogg, Rachel Lipman, and me, Jason Rosenbaum. The show is edited by Fred Ehrlich. Read all of our coverage at stlpr.org. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Politically Speaking by searching the term Politically Speaking on Apple Podcasts. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.